thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. It's that time of the Friday morning. We cross live to Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, answers your science and natural history related questions. Our WhatsApp line is filling up, but so is our phone lines. Um, Chris, how are you doing? I hope um, all those contacts that are coming in are not complaints. Let's hope so. <laughs> I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm doing good. And it would be lovely to see what people have got to lined up for us in a festive way. Festive Christmas questions. Welcome. I'm good. Merry Christmas. How are you? Very good. Let's just jump straight in because we have three or four lines waiting here already. Joe in Hart Bay, good morning. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had COVID a few months ago and I about six weeks after I got COVID, I developed a new um, type of taste and smell that I've never experienced before. And the closest I can come to describing it is that certain foods now have quality of charred rotten onions. So it's a brand new smell, taste um, sensation, definitely the two linked. And I wondered how such a thing could happen and could it have been to do with COVID? I've seen reports of these, Chris and Joe, um, of people experiencing the sensation of, of having the taste and smell of, of what they can only describe as, as, as rotten food. Uh, Joe, normally you have to pay a lot of money to get a new taste sensation in a restaurant. So uh, in some respects, you could look upon this as uh, an advantage. I'm sure you don't, though. What you're <laughs> developing is what's called porosmia. P-A-R-O-S-M-I-A, porosmia. And this is turning out to be quite common with people who get coronavirus. Because of the anosmia, the damage that's uh, done by the virus to the olfactory epithelium, the layer of tissue at the back of the nose and throat that detects smell, and because most of what we call taste is actually a smell sensation, when that particular tissue regenerates and recovers because the virus directly damages the nerve cells there that do the job of detecting odours and therefore endowing us with our sense of smell and taste. They grow back, but in some people they don't connect back into the right bits of the brain quite correctly and there's a bit of misrouting. And it's a bit like a telephone junction box where the odd house gets connected instead of to the correct single telephone line to a couple of other houses. And so a smell comes in, and normally it would create a particular smell sensation because one particular smell molecule docks with one particular uh, group of nerve fibres. But when those smells come in, instead of recruiting just that nerve fibre that says, I smell like X, it also activates a whole bunch of other pathways that would normally only be activated by a particular other group of smells. And the result is that it changes the perception in some people this goes away and it goes away it takes a little while and things do reroute and reconnect and they're finding that some people get it uh, back to normal better if they do a bit of smell training so you take certain smells that are really strong really pure and retrain your sense of smell to detect those and you have to do it for a little while 
but some people, and it might be quite a high fraction, as in up to 10% of people, it, it doesn't actually change. It seems to be something that stays, at least for the near term. So what you have is the condition parosmia. What you may have is an altered smell and taste perception that may be there for a while. Thankfully, it doesn't sound as intense as, as some people. One of my colleagues in, in the University of Cambridge, she says that everything smells like, to, in her words, rotting garbage. And I think this is what Lester was getting at at the, at the beginning of the show in, uh, in the tail end of your question. Thanks so much for that, Joe. Really appreciate it. Marion in Sunningdale, how are you? Fine, thank you, Lester. What's your question to Dr. Chris? He's listening. Yes. Um, what is the significance of the small letters C, D, E after a person's blood type? I'm not sure. I'm not a hematologist, um, and I haven't seen this. Um, maybe someone who is will, will be able to tell us. I mean, obviously there are blood groups, which are A, B, and O, and then there's the rhesus factor, but I don't know what C, D, E would be. That, that, that uh, escapes me, that one. So anybody who runs a blood chemistry lab or a hematology lab, please do let us know what do those letters mean, please. Marin, we, we'll get the um, Western Cape blood service on the line maybe we can answer your question in in another way zuki in big bay how are you doing hi Lester. i'm good thanks how are you so my question is gray hair or silver hair is hair that doesn't have melanin right so why is it that when one bleaches hair with like peroxide it doesn't turn gray but rather turns blonde hi zuki the answer to this one is actually the natural color of hair is white not gray and it's because hair is made of the protein keratin, it's the same stuff that your fingernails and toenails are made of. And if you look at your fingers and toenails, where they're growing away from your skin, they are white. And that's the natural colour your hair will go when you don't add to it the melanin, as you quite correctly say, is which is giving it its dark colour. Or, in the case of blonde people... It's blonde coloration because there's different flavours of melanin. Melanin comes in a dark black form, which is called eumelanin, and there's a yellow form made by people who have a slightly different genetic recipe for making their melanin, and that's called pheomelanin. And the ratio of those two also has an, an, inf- an impact and, and an effect on hair coloration. When you blonde, when you bleach your hair with peroxide, what you are doing is is chemically brutalizing the hair with usually something that's pretty alkali at the same time first to open up the hair scales. The peroxide then breaks down the melanin and then you close the scales back down again. So it's a, it's a bit like opening the car door, throwing in a bucket of water to wash everything out that's in there and then shutting the doors again. doesn't leave the car in much good condition afterwards but uh, changes the, the colour of what's inside the upholstery. Uh, it, it's sort of similar with your hair. And so it will revert the hair to a different colour of melanin. It doesn't completely strip it out and remove all of it, but it will change the colour of the melanin that's there to a blonde colour or a a yellower colour. And when you ask about grey hair, grey hair doesn't go grey so much as it's a bit like if you imagine a light bulb that's on the blink and it's on sometimes and off sometimes. If you look in a hair, the proportion of melanin that's in there compared to normal is reduced but it doesn't sort of stop all of a sudden. So you go black hair, black hair, or blonde hair, blonde hair, white. It goes black hair, not quite so black as it should be, not quite so much melanin today, oh, back to normal for a bit, no, I'm off again. And it creates this speckly pattern of melanin deposition down the hair, making it look 
as they could say salt and pepper or grey. And I, I spoke to a researcher oh, a couple of months ago now, and he'd published a paper in the journal eLife, which is really fascinating. They actually followed a person over a, a period of time looking at how stress affects the deposition of melanin in hair and they found actually it is true that stress can make you go grey because biochemical stress in the body was affecting in this patient they found the amount of melanin that they were laying down in their hair so their hair was changing its melanin composition in response to stress so when people say you're going to send me grey with all this stress actually it looks like there's now biochemical evidence to back up the statement Plenty of super stressed people, yeah, where I'm standing or I'm sitting, yeah, with with graying hair, uh, Chris. But th- does does salt water or seawater does it also have uh, pl- a player? I, I have friends who, who who surf during winter, and they have they have dark colored hair. But when it comes to summer, and they're they're out, you know, in the water, what six, seven, eight hours a day. The, obviously, there, there's there's more sunlight, but they also then tend to go a, a tinge blonder in the not only the the head hair but also their facial hair. Does does salt water also have a, a play a role? Well, sunlight definitely will. And when you're out uh, getting very um, surfy, then you're going to get lots of sunlight from above. You're also going to get lots of sunlight reflecting from the water as well. So you get a double dose mm. of sunshine, and the salty water will help to expose the hair a bit more to the bleaching effect of sunshine if you imagine um, if you look in in your say house where the sun has come through the window in the same patch for years and years you get a a lighter patch on the carpet because the the dye in the carpet has been bleached by the sunshine it's the same with with hair so your surfer friends are getting lighter hair because of the bleaching effect of sunshine when combined with the double dose coming from above reflecting off the water and the chemical composition of the water perhaps making the hair a little bit more susceptible to the bleaching effect as well. Anthony in Somerset West, good morning. Hi there. I would like to know how on earth do you get me, you, not you, me, get rid of facial hair? I've done the electronicist, I've done the laser, I've done everything, but I have to tweeze it. Um, it's quite a lot. It's almost like a you know, I can play with my beard if I go with a There's week. nothing wrong with that, Anthea. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. How sexy. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's all a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a social construct of how we relate to, to facial hair. So even with men and with women, so it's absolutely fine. Nothing to be shy about. No, listen, listen to me. <laughs> if someone touches my face, I cringe because it's like a beard. Mm. And I had tweezers every day. Or I use electric razor that a dermatologist has suggested. But I don't want to go through life with a beard. If it's important to you, it's important to us. Chris? Good. This is actually quite common and and very distressing for some people. It's, it's it's particularly in women, obviously, but actually it's something that can be dealt with and should be investigated. In younger women, there are various hormonal reasons why this happens. In older women, it can also become more common because especially post the menopause, when the balance of hormones in the body changes, this can also shift towards a more pro 
hairy state in some parts of the body in some people. But this can be investigated. I would suggest seeing a dermatologist because they can help with this and there are various ways of dealing with this. You mentioned that you've tried things like electrolysis done well by a professional. This can be extremely good to get rid of the the extra hairs that are wayward and being a nuisance and are the most unsightly. So I would recommend uh, that someone looks at you looks at this properly just to make sure we're not missing something or that there's not some hormonal thing that's going on and then look at how they could give you some kind of cosmetic fix that will mean you don't have to painfully pull these things out with a tweezer and uh, each day and i think a it'll make you feel better and b it will save you a lot of time thank you very much let me be a little bit fair and reflect some of the questions that have come and we'll take your calls in, in a short while. There's a question here that asks, uh, I think it's from Colleen in Deep River. I would like to know where half the sand goes when a dog digs a hole. Uh, when <laughs> you refill the hole, most of the sand is missing. And yes, I have a new puppy, says Colleen. Yes, I, I've had this experience because my dog liked to dig up ants' nests. Why he wanted ants' nests and they would then sting and bite him, I, I don't know, they'd be all over his head. But the reason that probably the dirt doesn't go back in the hole is twofold. Number one, that uh, the dirt is actually being sprayed all over the place. The dog is not just putting the dirt neatly in one place. So you're actually losing a fraction of the dirt or the sand rather than scooping just what's been moved back into the hole. You're missing some. Second, the composition of dirt or sand is of particles glued together by salt and silt with big gaps between them where water has been and areas so when you dig into the soil you disturb that structure and you knock out all the air spaces and so all of the particles then settle back much closer together so when you try to put it all back in the hole it doesn't all fit and you've got a gap that's the space that would have been occupied by air or water between the particles when they were in their previous configuration in the pre-puppy digging phase Let's go to a quick voice note now. 0725671567. You're listening to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Let's have a go. Morning, Lester and Dr. Smith. I would like to know why mosquitoes prefer my blood or biting me at night instead of my wife. They literally <laughs> fly over her, they come to me, and they bite me. Why would that be? Thanks, Chris. What a brilliant question. And this this is very well studied now. And um, the answer to this is that some people just taste better. Now, mosquitoes, it's, and it's actually the female mosquitoes that do the biting, and they do it seasonally because in order to lay loads of baby mosquito eggs, they go for a high-protein meal, and they get that from blood, they can't get that from the normal fruits and sugars that they would eat if they would just uh, loiter where mosquitoes loiter the rest of the time. The way they track down their high-protein blood meal is using various chemical markers and cues to give away a potential dinner plate. And that dinner plate is something warm-blooded, like us. And the way they do it is to use their antennae, which are their equivalent of a nose, which are bedecked with huge numbers of receptors which are chemical docking stations for various molecules. And when those fire off, the mosquitoes can resolve across their two antennae which direction the smell is coming from. So they fly backwards and forwards across the room, and the stronger the smells that they're interested in on one antenna over the other tell them that that's the direction it's coming from, and they home in 
like literally a heat-seeking missile, on the source. They're also sensitive to heat, so they're going for a hot place that smells right. The smells they're really interested in are carbon dioxide, and so a bigger person that's breathing out more carbon dioxide is going to be more attractive than a smaller person. And this is actually why women, when they're pregnant, are more susceptible to being bitten, and then they get more malaria. because And that then causes a problem for the, the unborn baby because the baby's born with a tolerance to malaria and gets more severe malaria later. But there are other smells as well. And researchers at Rotham's did research. You, you can look up the, the work of um, uh, John Pickett and also uh, James Logan at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, both of whom have spent quite a bit of time looking at this. You find that there are certain combinations of smells that certain people naturally make because of their biochemistry that also are very, very attractive to mosquitoes. And equally, there are some combinations of smells that are very, very unattractive to mosquitoes. So this means that in the population, there are people who are, just because of their genetics and biochemistry, more of a mosquito magnet than other people. And it must be that the particular combination of how hot you are, uh, how much CO2 you're breathing out, how many of these other volatile molecules that mosquitoes find attractive that you're producing on your skin, and how many of the deterrent molecules that you're not producing, that particular combination in you is much more attractive relative to your wife. And so given the choice, the mozzies are homing in on you. I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that attracts mosquitoes in in our household so i i am See, i'm not perpetually i'm not my I'm wife my wife is the mosquito magnet i go out with her i don't need to wear repellent because they're all on her well i i i'm the one with the repellent and the and the mosquito <laughs> plug in the plug closest to where i am um joseph is 10 and i suspect this is a a message written by by joseph's mom or dad and joseph is 10 and he asks why does lighting a match take away the smell of poo and I, I guess it's when, when you go to the loo and uh, instead of using some air freshener, many people light a match. Why, why does that seem to work better than the air freshener? One person said to me, if you do foul the air in someone else's bathroom, you can take away the smell by lighting a match, dot, 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 and setting fire to the hand towel. <laughs> and, and I think the, the point they're making is that when you do this, you produce a very high concentration of smells all in one place which dominate and outcompete or mask the nasty niffs that you're trying to hide. The brain and the body is very sensitive to things that are present at low concentration. It's also much more sensitive to things which are changing. So if you produce a whole new smell sensation, you've already got used to the bad smell, so you notice the new smell more. But someone who's coming in totally unadapted will in fact notice both smells and they'll think it smells of smoky farts in here, probably, is what they would, is what, is what they would say. But really it's probably a masking phenomenon that if, if you've got a massive amount of smoke in a room and, and a small amount of, of fart odours, you're going to smell the, the smoke more, but you will still notice both initially but there's this wonderful process called adaptation which is where mm. the nervous system slowly gets used to the presence yep. of a stimulus that's not changing and pays most attention to what is new because at the end of the day if we paid attention equally to everything all the time we'd be in sensory overload so the, the way the body and the brain copes with this is to chiefly prioritize processing for what is changing because at the end of the day, if, if you're sitting there eating your lunch and then something comes along that, that might kill you, you need to know about the new thing that's going to kill you, not the lunch you've already been eating, because so, that's so going to be better you, for your survival. 
You're saying that those of us who for 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 years have been using matches to to try and uh, deodorize a, a a toilet, it only masks it for for us. But the person who's coming in after you still gets the foul smell and just a little bit of of smoke. So so yeah, it's it's a, it's a useless process. I, I think they're going to think. notice both. But the good news is that everyone will get used to it eventually. There's, there was one other theory as to why your own doesn't smell as bad as somebody else's, which is that there has already been some exposure to your own going on because most people are, are covertly is creeping a few out here and there. And some of the molecules that are not smelling too good have already leached through your bloodstream to your olfactory system. So you've already adapted yourself to your own smells a bit more already. And also because you can anticipate the smell you're going to make, and predict it's going to be bad, you don't get so offended by it as when somebody else does it and catches you unawares and it comes out of nowhere and then you find it deeply unpleasant because it's a brand new stimulus, you're sensitive to that, you haven't encountered it before and you have no control over when and where it comes from. Well, 10-year-old Joseph, don't play with matches, but if it, if it works for you and your family, I, I guess it does. But but David Clatso's calling in. David Clatso is a well-known forensic scientist here in Cape Town. Um, Chris, uh, you want to talk about Mozzie's? How are you doing, David? Hello, Chris. Thank you. Yes, hello, Lisa. I Yeah, I did. I wanted to just share with you something which, uh, which I've been using for years. If you've got a mosquito problem, what you do is a very simple thing. You get an old plastic bottle of some kind, cut it in half and invert the top so that there's a narrow opening. And into that bottle, you put some warm water, three three teaspoons of sugar, and you put some yeast powder. And what happens is the yeast munches on the sugar and produces carbon dioxide, and the mosquitoes love it. Yeah, and um, the yeast will also produce some other volatiles as well because, as I mentioned, the mozzies are going for blood only when it's breeding season, but they also go normally for rotting fruit so they can easily suck up the sugary solution oozing out of the rotting fruit. So if you make something that smells like that, uh, so you've got basically a a strong source of CO2 and other volatiles, you you will lure in mosquitoes. Yeah, brilliant suggestion. I hadn't thought of doing that. It works very well. And uh, it's a very cheap way of uh, ridding the mosqu- uh, mosquitoes out of your room at night. They won't come near you with, when you do that. Uh, David, I hope you can help us. Uh, Chris says he's, he's, he's not too clued up on hematology, and, and maybe it's a South African classification, but there was a, a, a caller who asking, what does the letter CD or CD slash E mean after a, a, a written description of, of your blood type? Would you perhaps know? Have you encountered that? Just give it to me again. CD, or CDE in capitalized or CD slash lowercase e. I'm not sure what that means. I, I, you know, I worked in blood groups for many years, but, but that's something which uh, I, probably my Alzheimer's is uh, airbrushed out of my mind. Okay, well, we, we're going to get the Western Cape blood service on and, and maybe for, uh, I think it was Marin, we will eventually answer that question. Keith asks, Chris, and probably one of our last questions for this morning, um, if you cough in your fist or your elbow, as we've been told to do or drilled into us over the last two years, what happens to the germs? And are your is your fist and, and elbow not full of germs now? That's a message from <laughs> Keith, Chris. The answer is yes, it is. It's, it's ram full of viruses and, and possibly bacteria and some fungi, almost certainly. 
When you cough and sneeze, what you're doing is creating very fast air currents that carry whatever is loitering and lingering up your airways out in droplets and in some cases naked form into the air around you. And the faster you sneeze, the more you expel and the further it goes. And if you sneeze into something... Although you're still producing a rush of air and some of this nasty muck is going to leave your body, it will be trapped in the thing that you are sneezing or coughing or blowing into. So some of the infectious burden will be cut down and reduced and you will get an infectious elbow, but presumably you're not going to be eating that or feeding that to other people. So it will hopefully stay there, at least for a while. And B, if you're not producing such a huge, great torrent of air, it won't expel so much across a bigger area. So it's less uh, material in the air for other people to infect. So it's a bit more polite. It does probably translate into lower infectious disease burden in the air. And therefore, it does help to keep the spread of airborne infectious diseases down at least a bit. The best solution, though, is not to expose yourself to other people in the first place. If you're unwell, uh, if you've got symptoms of a respiratory infection and you're coughing and sneezing, better to keep yourself away from everybody while you recover and then they're better off. And so are you because you'll keep your friends. Chris, are you are you taking a break over over the December season? Uh, I'm I'm going to try. It's been quite a hectic year, and we've got this Omicron business now keeping us on our toes and keeping us very very busy. So, I, I will endeavour to have a bit of a rest up. But um, you never know what life's going to throw at you, do you? So, how about you? Um, I'm working all the way through. We will keep up to date with you in in the next few weeks to see if you are available on Fridays for us. I know next week is is Christmas Eve. I don't know if you're going to take a, some time off, but Looking forward to and thank you for for the year. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, thank you, Lester. It's been great. It's been really good fun, and um, and you've been a terrific host. <laughs> it's been it's been really good getting to know you. And um, yeah, happy Christmas and happy Christmas to everybody. We're looking forward to twenty twenty two and a more fantastic questions. And when people have got the answer to the CDE group, and I feel so much better that David, who's worked in blood, didn't know the answer either. That sort of that sort of restores some of my credibility, doesn't it? Um, I'm looking forward to getting the answer to that as well for Christmas, Chris, if someone can do that. Many people ask us, uh, why don't we uh, podcast um, the Naked Scientist uh, segment? You do it on your website. Please give us some direction where people can go to listen to this. Yep, Every week on a Friday, after we finish, ideally on a Friday, we publish this at thenakedscientist.com slash ask ask the naked scientist.com slash ask and in fact the entire catalogue of all of the 702 and the cape talk podcasts going back to 2008 are there for you to listen to there are hundreds it should keep you going for at least a year if you listen to a couple of weeks one person said they listened to all of the programs we've ever made and they said they knew they'd overdone it because they began to dream with an english accent <laughs> so don't do that but do enjoy it's all there for free nakedscientist.com slash ask we'll see chris smith the naked scientist when you see him thank you so much thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.